Welcome to The Breakdown with Brock Corbin-Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Brockorb. And I'm Becky Scher. On this week's episode, we're breaking down an incident involving the mistreatment of MinPost reporter Peter Callahan by House DFO leadership at the Minnesota State Capitol and the impacts the situation could have on the First Amendment and transparency at the Minnesota legislature. We're excited to be joined by two separate guests this week to discuss this topic. First, we speak with Tanner Curl, the executive director of MinPost. Tanner oversees the organization's management strategy and revenue of MinPost. Second, we interview Jay Patrick Kulikin, the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. We're uh, happy to be joined today by Tanner Curl, who is the executive director of MinPost. We're having him on today to discuss a letter that was sent last week by MinPost and a coalition of media outlets to discuss the treatment of one of their reporters, Peter Callahan, who is a credentialed member of the press at the Minnesota State Capitol. Uh, Tanner, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I'd, I'd like to you to just kick it off uh, and discuss it from your perspective. What was the basis of the letter? What were the issues around it? And, and explain to our listeners what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the letter speaks for itself. It is a coalition letter, and it's uh, published on our site uh, of Transparency. We published it uh, for all of our readers to see, and and people can check it out at minpost.com to do that. So I encourage people to do it and lays everything out. Um, You know, it comes out of uh, certain activities or actions taken by House staff uh, in regard to our reporter in terms of particularly notifying capital security, removing him from a press list um, and other concerning things that, you know, feel like they could be interpreted as a type of intimidation or a threat uh, that reporters need to toe the line or, or you know, follow a certain thing. Whereas, you know, that's not our role there. Our role at the Capitol is around accountability. It's to be the eyes and ears of everyday Minnesotans about what's going on what policies are being proposed, what's being passed, uh, you know, how is power being used uh, and and how will that affect Minnesotans? So, you know, we need that um, ability to do that. And uh, we felt it was an important line to draw and to make clear that we were concerned about these actions um, and uh, that we would look to clarify uh, what their intent was and, and go from there. It should be noted that partisans House DFL and Senate, whoever's in control of the majority, uh, handles most of the credentialing, although it's handled by you know nonpartisan offices. And so there's a ripple effect that can have on this. Uh, describe, if you can, um, what is the relationship that has traditionally existed between reporters and the media at the Capitol, particularly at press conferences? Um, I mean, as far as I know, you talk to the reporters would have more of the firsthand view of that. Um uh, but, you know, as far as I know, it's obviously it's a working relationship and it is a relationship of a type. Sometimes it can be adversarial. Um, uh, but, you know, that there's availability, there's access uh, to ask questions, to get clarity on things. Um, you know, I can I, in this regard, obviously it is a coalition letter, but I can speak uh, most on behalf of MinPost approach and the reporters we have there. Um you know, accountability is certainly part of the deal, but, you know, we're trying to help people understand what's going on. And, you know, this year in particular, there's a lot of legislation that's happening and there's some big policy proposals that are up there. And we're trying to take an honest and fair approach at explaining, you know, what those proposals are in response to, the effects they could have, um, 
and you know being able to ask those questions is an important part of that uh, part of that job. Um, uh, yeah. Why? You know, um, with the availability of media, we can stream things, we can see things. Uh, the, 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 it, why is it so important for Minnesotans? Why should this issue matter to Minnesotans? It's obviously critically important to me as someone who's, who's written, and I, I, in interest of disclosure, I've done some work for MinPost in the past. But having been both a, a comm staffer at the Capitol and someone who's, who's written about events in the Capitol, this is a critically important issue. But to most Minnesotans, they might be, there might be a little bit of a disconnect. Explain, if you can, why it's so important that reporters have access to the Capitol and that there was a reason to stand up and defend the work of, of, of your reporter. Yeah, I mean, we are not stenographers. Um, you know, like you said, the, the recording of this incident, this news conference that kind of kicked all of this off, this is available online. It's been posted, you know, the, the distinct part of it, but the House Media Office itself posts this video on YouTube. Um, uh, and, you know, our role there, and again, I'm speaking mostly from MinPost point of view and where we see our distinct lane in the Minnesota media ecosystem, particularly in terms of the state capital, is the context and clarity around it. Um, you know, certainly anybody can watch these news conferences and so forth, but one, are we there to push back on things to say, hey, this isn't clear, this isn't adding up, can you square this, or how do you respond to this, or, you know, to take those types of questions is vitally important, uh, and we think should be part of a healthy capital press corps working relationship, regardless of what party is in charge. Um, the other thing is these are complicated policies and, you know, everyday Minnesotans, I include myself as an everyday Minnesotan, you know, I'm not at the Capitol myself doing the reporting. I rely on this reporting to understand what's going on. Um, and, you know, certainly there's a lot that goes into it. That's not just being there and listening to what's said and then regurgitating that out. Um, you know, we're not there as a courtesy to the elected officials that are in charge. They have the ability, they can, like, they have their own social media channels and so forth. They can put their message out there, but there's the accountability of it and there's the explaining of it as a fair and honest convener who does not have an agenda or a particular interest other than helping people understand. Um, as you mentioned, this uh, news clip or this clip from this press conference is available. And Michael, I know you tweeted it out a couple of days ago as well at M. Bradcorp um, for anybody listening that wants to go see it. Um, in particular, I did have a question on, on on a part of the letter. So I have a communications background. I spent about a decade working um, on campaigns for electeds at the state capitol or in Congress. Um, and so one question I had is a line in there that says the media do not assemble at press conferences as passive recipients of remarks. Rather, press conferences are participatory events designed to be interactive. Um, from my side of things, I believe that there has been some evolution of, of what that looks like or how staff often sets that up. Do you, from, from the press side, do you guys feel as though there has been an evolution of how um, your reporters go in there and, and maybe a decade ago have, have been able to ask questions and had a lot more back and forth and less so now? Or is this an anomaly? Uh, I mean, again, I would defer to the reporters who were there day to day doing this work directly. Uh, they'd be able to speak to it better than I would. The impression, the impression I've gotten, is that there certainly has been an evolution 
over time of uh, decreasing access, I think not only on the state level, you certainly hear about this on the national level, um, you know, that there is simply less availability uh, and less availability around that participatory aspect. The idea of being able to, you know, ask an elected official a question and, you know, they can decide if they're going to respond on the spot. They're not obligated to respond. Um, but I think, you know, having that pressure of the role of the press is uh, important and at least being able to have the opportunity to ask those questions um, is vital. Uh, and that's the part of it that we can control. Um, so that's how I would respond to that. It's important that the media coalitions came in, in defense of InPost, but the ramifications of this long-term could be, what's the significance of what could happen here? I mean, is it is it a situation where, as was noted in your letter, this could have a chilling effect on the ability of reporters to ask questions, and they would have to gauge? And we should set up for the listeners. As someone, both Becky and I have had partisan roles interfacing with the media, and in partisan roles interfacing with the media that is that is a in some instances it's a combative argumentative dynamic but it's all done from a standpoint of i think mutual respect they want information and in some instances there is a struggle on what you want to release and what you want to give out and there's a give and take that needs to happen and it seems that the chilling effect in this is that there's going to be less give and less take between reporters and elected officials is if this coalition didn't come around in defending MinPost. Is, is that the long term from your perspective, how that could end up hurting the, the press process and the reporting process? Yeah, I mean, that's the heart of the concern. Uh, and that was the whole impetus around this letter. That's why the coalition came together in the way that it did. And I'm, I just want to reiterate my gratitude to the coalition uh, around this. And, you know, we worked with Lita Walker, who's the preeminent First Amendment press rights lawyer in the state. Uh, um, you know, the implication being don't push, don't ask questions, um, or, you know, you, there might be retaliation. And again, I want to emphasize, I hope we're wrong. You know, we're reading into these actions and we're interpreting and inferring from that. And I would love clarity <laughs> that says that that is not accurate, um, that that's a misunderstanding and, acknowledging that misunderstanding. Um, and I hope that's what comes of this. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see. And so for a point of clarification, so you, um, this letter was sent, I, I believe the date was April 12th. It is at the time of recording this, um, has been five or six days since then. To, to this point, you have not, there's been no response to that letter currently, correct? Uh, well, the speaker had a statement that uh, she released on Friday afternoon. Um, that clarified their policies around harassment and discrimination. Again, it's unclear to us exactly um, how those policies were applied here in this situation. You know, they were brought, that was, and the letter goes into this, that was the initial, when they reached out to us about it, the initial um, sort of communication. We did our due diligence and we looked into it and we watched the video and we talked to the people who were there um, and said, you know, to our mind, it does not qualify as, you know, something that would enact that type of policy. 
Um, so it's still unclear to me how that policy applies. I, I mean, it is certainly the House's prerogative to have some policy around how their staffers are treated. You know, this is not, it's not like we're arguing like, oh, you know, well, we're the press, so we can treat anybody, you know, it's, you know, right. free, free reign on how people are treated. There is, you know, professionalism and some decorum that uh, should be followed. Um, but we don't think that was violated here. And we haven't heard an explanation of how or why they think that was violated in this instance. But even more concerning to us are the actions that were taken afterward in terms of, you know, capital security, the house sergeant at arms being notified. We don't know what that means, um, you know, and, and so we're left to infer and interpret. And again, we're just looking for clarification and hopefully it's satisfactory clarification uh, on, on what that means and, and, you know, how these policies are enacted and how they're followed and how that relates to press rights and the First Amendment. It's important to note for our listeners that the Minnesota legislature, uh, the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act does not apply to the legislature. And, and there is government accountability in terms of transparency and disclosure at all levels of government, but it does not apply to the legislature, which is why in so many instances, it's so critical that reporters and journalists and media alter their covering, pushing and asking questions, because the level of transparency in many instances comes through what the reporters are able to learn through the process or what is released through the official channels. And anyone who is a student of journalism in the United States, American politics, knows that how many times it's been a reporter getting an, an interest, asking a question, pushing the envelope and asking questions in a responsible way and digging that has led to more transparency and a better functioning government. And so Tanner, I just want to thank you for being here today. I hope, and I'm glad that you, I'm glad that your organization is standing by your reporter. I'm glad that other reporters are doing it too. It is so important for this state, for the first amendment, for freedoms of the press, that reporters feel comfortable asking questions. Having been on multiple sides of that issue, uh, it's important that we see that for our state and for our country and democracy. And so I thank you for your work. And uh, I hope if there's an update at some point down the road or other issues, we can speak with you again. Yeah. I mean, I just want to reiterate, you know, that role, often people, they encounter, you know, whether it's a story or they read or something they hear on the radio or whatever, you know, they see the end product. But all of the work, everything, every little bit that went into producing that journalism, um, you know, there's a lot of work that our reporters, that our editors, that these journalists are doing, and it's not always linear. It's not always clean. Sometimes it is, I'm going to pull on this little string over here and you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it might pull on something that's of note and that should be out in the light of day. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate the coalition standing with us on this and I, I it would behoove me to put the pitch out there that, you know, not just MinPost, we're a nonprofit, we rely on uh, community support to do what we do, but, you know, all of the media ecosystem and so forth, um, you know, just how important it is to for, for Minnesotans to stand with us, not only on this issue, but in the work that we do day in, day out, you know, all year long. Plug your website one more time. Uh, minpost.com. And if people want to donate, it's minpost.com slash support. Uh, but yeah, I want to thank you for, for having me on. And, and, uh, I hope next time maybe we can talk about, you know, real news, uh, <laughs> you know, the content of news, uh, and That's not right. our ability to produce it. So, yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today. We look forward to having you on again. We wish you the best. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that was great. Absolutely. It's um, certainly a troubling situation. I know it's it's not going to be going away quietly or I don't expect it to go away quietly. Um, but, you know, you you spent like we talked about, you spent a lot of time in working in communications and in journalism. Do you have any unique insight having worn both hats? Uh, let me say to you this from this perspective, having worn the hat of writing, of being a press person, meaning communicating with the press, being someone who's written about the press, and then also someone who's been the subject of press stories. Uh, I wore it from all three hats. I am, when I found the video of the, of the, the incident that was described, I watched it multiple times because I was very challenged. I, I was confused as to whether I found the right clip and what I was seeing was accurate. Um, and what I mean, what I meant, what I mean is, was the video, was I, did I have the right clip? Because I didn't understand how anyone could be offended or upset as to what they were seeing. It was a very benign statement um, by Callahan, I thought. And, and let's set this up for a minute. And you might have a different perspective, but one of the roles that you and I have both played in terms of, aside from speaking to the media directly, is organizing press conference for principals who speak at the podium. And the dynamic that exists is whether it's a, with the state party or, or any type of elected official, the person speaking at the podium generally has a message that they want to get out. There in the audience are a collection of reporters who all have, in some instances, sometimes a different agenda. And that's okay. And the, the objective that you want to accomplish by speaking at the press conference is to deliver a message. But there might be something in the course of that, in, in the course of that press conference that a reporter might tug at, might, as, as, as Tanner dealt with, pull, pull a little bit of the string and ask more questions. And that give and take is important. Um, and I was uh, surprised by the reaction to uh, uh, Mr. Callahan's uh, request for, to ask additional questions. What led what before, the incident that happened before that was a House staffer uh, had said one more question. Now I'm sure Becky, you and I have both said the one more question thing at a press conference. As I tweeted out, I've always viewed, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I want to get your take. I've always viewed the one more question as I'm talking to the person at the podium, saying, "Just take one more question because we're going to be done." The media, I have no control over the media. So the media can fire questions out all day long. Uh, I've been at press conferences. I would say the vast majority of times where I've said one more question, it has never ended on one question. <laughs> no. um, so the person at the podium usually says answers one or two more. And then what very frequently happens is when the press conference is over, the lights go off, you will see reporters come up to the podium, ask more questions. I've seen situations where reporters have followed as we leave. Uh, do follow-up questions. That's the basic nature of the press conference. But as I understand the conflict, the conflict was when this MinPost reporter said, no, we're going to ask more questions. And I'm just at a loss for that. Do, do you see it the same way? A hundred percent. I agree. I, I watched it multiple times and I'm like, is there is there something more going on? And you know, I will say I have worked for, let's say, some some eccentric individuals who um, might not always have the most calm, patient, um, you know, just policy focused past. So 
a lot of times we've been in situations where the questions that follow up that you might want to avoid have nothing to do with the subject matter of the press conference. In this situation, it appears that Peter, the reporter in question, truly was trying to ask questions about the legislation that was being debated, you know, multi-hundreds of millions of dollars piece of legislation, so that he could relay that to Minnesotans, whose taxpayers' dollars are being spent here. You know, MinPost does longer form stories very often. Um, This wasn't, you know, asking some question about a scandal of the day or something off the wall. He was truly seemed to do this. And in my, from my point of view, not only could he could the staffer have said, you know, we have something else to get to, whatever, here is a researcher, or, you know, offer something else, right? Offer a staffer to talk to, offer some more information, offer a follow-up interview. There's so many different things. But to take that and turn to, I'm offended, this is harassment, and go as far as it was is just really, truly mind-boggling to me. What do you think is actually going on? Um, Because, you know, because and and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I'm. It feels like I think I think Tanner was. I think his. I think he was. He answered our questions. He was direct. But I even got the sense from him that he's trying to figure out what is actually going on here. Um, and I think that that was a legitimate question in his part as to what was going on. I saw the letter that came out from the coalition members. I then saw Hortman's statement. And then I saw more kind of social media activity. And I wanted to, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think is actually going on in this dust-up? Is this really a dust-up in your head between uh, an HR complaint or is something else going on? You know, that's a really good question. I don't have a perfect answer. I can see a couple of different things. One, I think it's very notable that this um, coalition of of reporters of media outlets came together to write this letter um i i could see it as an opportunity some some press outlet might see it as something like this as an opportunity of like oh great one less reporter to have to to you know contend with or compete with to get questions to get stories to get interviews um but the reporters all or, or media outlets all seem to really have taken this as a freedom of the press thing a a an ability of press to do their job to report on the ongoings of the capital with Minnesotans. So that to me believe makes me believe and and of course this is just you know out of assumption that there is potentially frustrations going on with the coverage or accessibility to these whether that's the governor or house leadership or DFL leadership and the press that their their questions are not getting answered they're not having that access that maybe they're used to or or desiring to be able to properly do their jobs. So you think that that Callahan's question of one more question was not just, I mean, having was because of some ongoing issues that they've had with accessibility um, at the press. So. Yes. Especially because of how much support is coming from all of these different outlets. It's it, you know, it, that to me is what's so telling here is that all of these different outlets are coming to uh, Callahan's and and Men Post's defense in this um, in this situation that this is a problem and we need to kind of nip it in the bud before it, it continues. Do you speak um, speak to a bit? Because you one of the things that you've uh, done that I have not is you've worked in Washington. Um, you've had inter- you've handled press at a, a national level, which is much more sig- significant. Not to diminish, I'm just saying anything from the press. But what I mean by that is what I mean by the significance is that you. You, when you're when you're doing press for a member of Congress, 
you're doing press in Minnesota and in Washington. So you have, in essence, twice the audiences. Not to say that the the press in the in the in the Minnesota isn't significant, but you have in essence double the amount of of a kind of a press audience that you have to deal with. Is there is there a describe if you can if there is any kind of difference between dealing with those outlets? Um, I think for the most part it's been kind of similar. You know, I I will say when I worked for for Congressman Emmer, you know, he took over after Michelle Bachman, um, who was very well known on the national scale. Um, and so Congressman Emmer really in the first term wanted to make sure that even though he was in DC, he was still very Minnesota focused. And so we at, at that point the the kind of decision was made to really continue to prioritize Minnesota press, even over some national press, which isn't always the case for for a lot of members of Congress, um, you know. I'm trying to raise a national profile. Um, but for my situation, I've always really enjoyed working with the press. I have good relationships with a number of, of Minnesota press and even some in D.C., you know, grab coffee, have conversations, and really just try to build those relationships. I will say one individual who um, I, I probably don't have very many politics or policies um you know, hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn here, is Pat Lopez, uh, an editorial board writer for the Star Tribune, um, is one that I enjoyed grabbing coffee with and, and, you know, having those kind of background conversations about different things. And, you know, really it, it allows that give and take then to be a little less troublesome or questionable or or whatever it might be when you do get in, you know, heated situations. But um, they're they're trying to do their job, just like, you know, the staffer, of course, was probably trying to do their job. Um, I will say I have had situations where um, I've been berated after a press conference. One member of the press who is since retired um, made me cry at one point. I, I waited until I was in the privacy of, of a closed room before. But, you know, so I, I, I have been in those situations. This is not that, though. And and that's what I think is is really truly so so troubling. Um, and uh, you know, one question I would have for you is: Do you what do you ha- think happens to this individual? Do you think this individual is is going to con- you know we'll hear more from him? Do you think we'll get an apology? Do you think we'll get more answers? And do you think that he will possibly keep or or not keep his job? I don't want to. I don't know about whether he'll keep his job. I will say to you a couple things. This isn't the fr- if if apology comes. This isn't the first time he's had to apologize before for his behavior and his interactions with the media. Um, I would say to you that he ha- will have a very difficult time interacting with the media after this because what's happened is is that the media has organized around him because of his behavior and because of his conduct. They've they've taken a very strong position with both him and the House TFL. I think that the media will be professional with their interactions with him. Um, as, and, and, and let me say very clearly, I don't think there was anything unprofessional with, with Callahan's question statement at the press conference. I do think that it's important that, um, that the house DFL and legislative caucuses have effective people out there, um, working with the media. I do think that that relationship has been strained, if not Uh, It may be unrepairable, not just based on this incident, but because of some social media activity that I also saw this weekend where this individual is interfacing with another uh, well-known reporter in Minnesota, sending some DMs and stuff. I will say to you that I think you raise a really good point about the dynamics between the media. I have had, um, I thought about this this weekend, I've had, I can count on one hand the number of times that I had arguments with reporters. I can think of one time that I told a reporter not to call me again. 
or not to not that I wouldn't interface with him again. But overall, um, that there is a very it is a very kind of rough and the press world is kind of rough and tumbled. It's it's adversarial. You can't have a hothead be your press person. Uh, there requires a level of dis- diplomacy and. Uh, over the years, even even based on my reputation a little bit in, in past press circumstances, I can literally count on one hand the number of times that I've had a, a really heated disagreement with a reporter. Um, it's a game of inches sometimes. You're, you're, you're talking about column inches. You're, you're, you're upset about coverage. You're trying to spin. Being we're interfacing with the media requires a level of diplomacy. Um, and so it seems in this instance that it's all been blown away that there's no ability to go back to that diplomacy anymore. And uh, having been, again, uh, you know, behind the mic, in front of the mic, and the subject of what's going on at the mic, I understand it from all three realms. And um, I just don't see in the long run how this individual is going to be effective in his job. I will also say to you that, um, to put a very finer point on it, I'm a huge advocate of the First Amendment. Um, having, I've done some work for, for the Star Tribune. I've written for MinPost, which I disclosed. I've done some independent contract work. I've written a book. Uh, I'm active on social media in a number of places. I'm a huge advocate of the first amendment and for transparency in government. I think that this could have a huge impact on that because what it's, tr- what the, the, the immediate effect it has is that it creates a less, it makes it more difficult for reporters to ask questions about what's been going on. I think it's critical. Um, I think the reporters that asked me questions about about uh, politics and policy and things related to my personal life, it was fair for them to ask those questions. Um, I didn't fault them for that. Um, but that has to exist. And I, I worry sometimes that because of the ease of, because the internet's now on the computer everywhere and we can see things and we can stream things in such a faster way that Americans and Minnesotans miss out on what it's like having someone on the ground asking that question. And we might not like what we might not like the question that's being asked of us, but it is critically important that reporters and journalists uh, are there covering this stuff uh, and getting it out in in an, in an unfiltered way as they can. Yes. Look, I'm a, you know, I'm a Republican in, in, and we can argue about the, how much of a Republican (laughs) I am. Everyone's got biases. Um, and so I understand that, that there's biases in the media. This isn't a biased issue. This yeah. is about transparency in government. And there are just, there are far too many examples in history of this type of behavior having a chilling effect on the ability of reporters to cover this stuff. And before we start talking about HR complaints and doing things, the media has to be provided a wide berth. And again, I will say, having watched the video of the incident, the full incident, I am very challenged by the accuracy of the statements that have made by the House leadership. I'm trying to not make this partisan, but the House DFL leadership. Um, And I need to learn a lot more about what happened before I will ever entertain the idea that the behavior of Peter Callahan, who I know to be a consummate professional, was anything other than that. You know, what I asked, one of the questions I asked Tanner, um, and I, I'd be interested in what your take is on this, is 
have you have you noticed an evolution of this sort of interaction? You know, maybe even um, you know the the Trump era, right? The fake news and the ability of of Trump to kind of axe uh, black less impressed. I I don't know about you. I have certainly um, worked with some individuals over the years who have you know, pitched axing somebody, a member of the press or blacklisting somebody or not taking one-on-one interviews on somebody um, or just even, you know, let's not do any more interviews. Let's just, you know, go on social media like the president. It, it doesn't work for anybody about the president, right? I mean, that's just not not the situation that everybody's just going to take a tweet and and run with it and write all these stories. Um, but have you, have you noticed an evolution in kind of what uh, that sort of relationship and, and maybe staff um, taking a little bit more control versus a 50-50 kind of relationship with the press? Uh, yes. I, I would say to you a couple of things. I think that one of the concerns that's developed at the Capitol, particularly under one-party control, has been issues of transparency. Um, and it's, so it's important from that standpoint that we have people there from different political backgrounds, uh, from different political persuasions, from different ideological bents, um, going out there and and asking those types of questions. I've long been an advocate of, of that type of work. And to, to answer your specific, your question, but then I want to pivot, is yes, I think under under it's I think it started under President Trump, but it's there's a long history of partisans battling with the media. I think he mainstreamed mainstreamed it in many ways. I think his adversary relationship with the media became much more pointed, much more aggressive. Um his his desire to call it out and to make the press an enemy. I will also say to you that I think the press um, did a lot of things under Trump's administration that they got wrong. Um, not to say that they got wrong more than they got right. They clearly got more right. But I think they provided a lot of ammunition about him um, that I think gave him a lot of material to raise concerns about. I would argue, I would of the position that I think the media needs to be more transparent uh, in in their in how they report what they report on and an evolution and more of a, a discussion on that process. Um, I would love to see more reporters do long form explanations of how they wrote stories, why they focus their coverage. I think that process material is significant. I know the press does not like to be the subject of the story. But in many ways, I think if the press did more to explain their coverage and how they come to their conclusions and why they wrote stuff and more of showing their work, I think it would break down some of the distrust that exists between the media uh, and the general public. Um, but they need to do it in, a, in not a holier-than-thou way. I think they need to talk at people. Let me also say to you that um, one of the things that I think is critically important is that media have free access at the Capitol. When I was the communications director uh, and Republicans took control of the Senate, one of the things that we did, one of the things that, um, so we Republicans, I worked, uh, I was with the state party. And then when I, when the Republicans took control of the Senate in 2010, I was a communication director for the minority and then the, for the minority caucus and the majority caucus. One of the, one of the benefits of being the communications director to the majority caucus is that I got to decide which members of the press were credentialed. And I did not think that that should be in the hands of a partisan like myself. Even, and so what I did is I worked with, I set up a, um, kind of a task force, I reached out to David Brower, who had done some work. I think he was doing some work at MinPost, but is an identified progressive. And I reached out to Mitch Berg, who's an online blogger. And, and I had them come in and advise the Senate uh, 
about setting up procedures to allow the institution of the Senate, not a partisan like me, to come up with rules that allowed for uh, independent journalists, bloggers, and other non-traditional media to be credentialed. And I think it was a great system. I think some of that system is still in place today because I believe that the media is not just MinPost, but it can also be an individual who's dedicated to reporting on that. And so the concern that I have is ultimately my, my overarching concern is that if the House DFL is allowed to act in this type of way, it's going to limit, slow down, and hinder the ability for there to be press coverage at the Capitol, whether it's with institutions like MinPost, larger institutions um, like the Star Tribune or other media outlets, or with Joe Q Public, who is a dedicated public servant and who wants to come. The media is a lot of things. It can be a guy, a guy or gal in their basement that wants to blog. It also can be the Star Tribune and larger media outlets. And I, and I, I just want to make sure that, that that type of access and ability happens. And what I worry about when, when what I see as of right now is a relatively benign situation escalate into letters and lawyers and HR complaints and calls the Capitol Police, the chilling effect is that there's going to be, that creates less of an environment for the for reporters and the media and citizen journalists to ask questions of elected officials. And that's where the problem herein lies. Now, also to play a little devil's advocate on that. You um, always play devil's advocate. You know, I try. Um, so obviously there is Having been on the st staff side, you there there are frustrations at times when you are have spent and sunk in all these hours and time and debate and testimony on a piece of legislation, and, and you have an interview or a press conference that goes haywire because you know somebody's looking for a click, right? The the journalists, their part of their job with the online and the internet these days is they need eyeballs, they need clicks, which sometimes can get a little salacious, especially you know post-Trump or Trump 2.0, whatever we're going to call it these days. Do you think there is some sort of responsibility of the press to to tame that down? Or do you think that's just part of, part of the game? Uh, well, there's a couple options. A few things. Number one, if you don't want to answer questions, don't run for public office. Um, it, it, there's a lot of ways you can serve government where you don't have to put yourself on the front line. And if, if you don't want to stand in front of the media and ask, answer questions, don't run for public office. The second thing I would say is that if they can also not answer the question, I mean, you know, I've been, a, I've been a part of press conferences where people have asked opt off topic covers conversations. And I'll say, it's not the focus of today, or I'm not, I'm not answering that or, or, or not right now, or we can talk offline or something. There's ways in which to diffuse that. There's some ways in which to deal that. And again, I don't want to also give the impression that, that members of the media uh, get to prostrate elect, you know, prostate elected officials out there on display and they, they just get to grill them till the, it's not the relationship that exists. It needs to be a cordial, respectful give and take. And an elected official can do a lot of things themselves that are well within the purview of their of of their response. For instance, if if an elected official was treated in a disrespectful way by a member of the press, it would be completely reasonable for them to not do one-on-one -on -one interviews with them, to not call on them, to not maybe answer their questions in 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 a, in a hurry. But 
where we're getting to the point in some of this stuff, at least with, with in the situation with Callahan, is you know he was removed from media list. And that's getting to the point where you're denying some access to a, an outlet to be informed about the, the 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 events and details and the interactions and the functions of government. Um, it is not the responsibility of a reporter who is who is or a uh, public official if they feel they've been mistreated by a reporter to uh, allow that reporter to uh, mistreat them. They have every right to say, I'm not going to sit down with an interview with you. I'm not going to talk to you. Uh, I'm not going to interface with you. That, that's that's okay to do. Because if if there's a disrespectful, unhealthy relationship that's going on and that, and that reporter is treating that elected official in a disrespectful way, they don't have any responsibility to put up with that. Um, but I do think that if you're an elected official, if, if you're someone who wants to serve an office and you decide to do it, I do think you have to have a little bit of a, a, a tough skin. And particularly when you seek certain offices, comes additional scrutiny. And I do believe that the people that were at the press conference, what was the focus of the press conference, requires that level of attention. And I don't think that the, anything that the Mr. Callahan did or anything that I've seen any other reporters do that I've seen warrants the response that's been received so far from the House caucus. And I hope by the time from the time we release this, from the time we record this to the time we release it, there's been some cooling down of things, but we'll see what happens. Certainly. You know, that is one thing um, that there there are tough reporters out there. There are tough questions. This is, you know, is all again stems from a very complicated piece of policy. Um, and it appears there was no gotcha journalism here. This was truly just trying to figure out how to do his job and to be perfectly frank, cover what this press conference was about. He wanted to be sure that he was covering this press conference, this issue, this legislation properly, well, and to the fullest extent it deserved. And it is just wild that um, that a staffer thought that that was offensive. Well, we'll continue to cover it. We'll continue to break it down and uh, we'll see where it goes. Sounds great. We're excited to be joined by our second guest this episode, Jay Patrick Hooligan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Before working at the Minnesota Reformer, uh, Patrick worked at the Star Tribune for five years. Patrick, it's great to have you here today. Good to be here. Um, there, um, I'd like you to talk a bit about uh, the coalition letter that you were a part of related to the mistreatment or treatment of uh, Peter Callahan, a reporter from InPost. Tell our listeners uh, why you got involved and what the issue meant to you that was so important for your organization, your media outlet, to get involved. Yeah, we were approached, uh, I guess it was a couple weeks ago, um, by um, an attorney, a well-known First Amendment lawyer, um, and on behalf of MinPost. And uh, um, when I read the letter, I mean, I had some inkling about this, uh, just kind of like capital chatter, but um, I wasn't really aware of the what had gone on. Um, when I read the letter, um, I thought it was a striking uh, series of events. And uh, I thought that um, it was important for us to show solidarity around this issue of um, the treatment of reporters at the Capitol. And, uh, I know Peter slightly, not, not very well. Um, but, uh, I know him to be, um, uh, an occasionally cantankerous 
figure around the capital. Um, but there's no crime against that as, as, uh, as is great for me too. Um, and what was set forth, I thought was kind of a disturbing, um, uh, a series of actions on the part of house leadership. And, um, and I thought that it was important that we stand up for the constitutional rights of, uh, reporters. Um, and, and the letter itself, you know, if you've read it, I think it made some some strong points about uh, the role of uh, journalists at the Capitol, and that is not as invited guests, but as um, people who are at the center of the the chief tool of self government, and that is um, free speech and debate. So that was kind of my thinking. Um, I had our lawyer read it as well, and he thought he thought it was a, a reasonable thing to sign on to, and um, and that was um, so that was two weeks ago. And then, as it turns out, really the the unbeknownst to me, there was quite a rallying effect here where a lot of local media signed on. Now, um, just uh, a day or so ago, the uh, House leadership, uh, Melissa Horman, released a letter. Uh, talking about, um, uh, from her perspective, a little bit of what happened, but that she certainly didn't want there to be there to be a chilling effect on um, relationships with the media and covering the Capitol press corps. From your perspective, why is it so important that journalists have the ability to cover events at the state capitol, not walk on eggshells, and have as even cantankerous or heated exchange? with elected officials. Why is that so important to the public? Well, uh, I, you know, I, I go, the reason that I'm in the, this, uh, profession, uh, is to a large extent because I really enjoy asking nosy and, um, annoying questions of people. in power. Um, and the, the whole point, of uh, a democratic self-government is that um, power is diffuse and we prevent people from getting too much power so that they can lord it over other people. And it's, it's imperfect and we, we've often um, not lived up to our, uh, the full meaning of our creed, if you will. But uh, in order to do that, you have to get information. And, and very often it's information that uh, these people in power don't want to give up. Um, and so that's kind of the basic, uh, philosophical grounding of it. Um, and I mean, so I, I hope that answers the question. Um, and, and there, and there's going to be, a, a, it's going to be adversarial. That's just the nature of it. Um, you, you know, I, it's, it's a, it's a very, in some ways it's an awkward, uh, unnatural position that we're in. Um, when we face off against um, elected officials, especially, but also their staffs and uh, other folks too, in, in that um, you know, we in our day to day interactions with people, it's natural that we just want to be civil and you know kind and polite, especially in the Midwest. Um, but often uh, the job requires uh, very confrontational and adversarial uh, questioning, nosy questioning that you would never ever ask of your neighbor or friend or even family um but but uh there are elected officials and candidates who they have information they don't want to give up 
um, because doing so would be damaging to them, um, to their their cause or their reputation or what have you. But um, it's it's our job to get that information to the public so the public can make good decisions about uh, the future of the state of Minnesota or, or the United States. You know, Michael and I have talked a little bit about our backgrounds on on the communication side and myself in particular, you know, working as that communication staffer for electeds or candidates. Um, and then also with this situation, kind of one of my thoughts was, you know, to see this rallying effect with all of these different outlets who some of who could look at this situation and say, oh, great, one of our competitors is out of the way, more room for us at the table, right? Is this, um, you know, my, and I think, Michael, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how this seems to be potentially um, everybody coming together because a mutual frustration or or some some lack of transparency and, and speed and, and lack of questions being answered with this one-party control. Is that something you're seeing or or what's your, your pers- you know, insight on that? Yeah, I mean, we've had... I think pretty good access um, and, and, and pretty good luck getting our, our questions answered. Um, So I don't want to complain too much on that front, but on the other hand, I'm not there every day. um, And so I don't know that I can speak to that necessarily. Uh, You know, we've had our tussles as well with governor walls um, and his staff. Um, And I do think that one party control does create, uh, a kind of attitude that, um, Hey, we're running things, get out of the way. Uh, we don't have to explain ourselves. And, you know, I do get that vibe a little bit. Um, and, and I think that's, that's going to be common. Um, if either party is in full control, you see that the federal government as well. Um, so I think that's, uh, there, there could be some, uh, some solidarity around, around that, uh, idea as well. Uh, I also, um, I think that, um, I want to go back to the, the, some of the roots of this are back to me too and 2018. And, um, I think there was you know, a lot of reporting and widespread agreement that the state capital, um, was often, um, an unhealthy, you could even say unsafe for some people working environment. And that's because there was a sense that um, elected officials, especially some of them um, felt that they basically, they had that election certificate and they could behave with impunity and they could speak to staff and lobbyists um, however they wished. And they were, they had gotten away with it for a long time. Um, and, and then there was a, there was a reckoning and I, I think it was a, it was a proper one. For, for a lot of people who worked to, around that building um, and it had been a very difficult place to work for young women, especially. And so they, they put in place um, a, a new HR policy that was meant to protect, make, create a safe workplace. Um, so I think we can agree that that's well-intentioned. Um, but the problem is, and, and they, this goes into this situation Currently, the situation with Callahan, where they said they had, quote unquote, serious concerns about him violating the, the harassment and discrimination policy because he'd been rude at a news conference, essentially. Um, and the speaker, Michael, you mentioned the speaker uh, had made a couple of statements. She's actually made two statements now. And the first one, she said, I had no choice but to act because we we're this is the policy. I had to act. 
It's like her hands were tied. Um, the problem is that, but uh, that the the Peter Callahan and uh, the rest of the press corps are clearly not bound by some HR policy of the of the Minnesota House, and and in fact that the the House's own policy sort of nods to that. So, well, we you know clearly this only applies to members and staff, um, and just more uh, more broadly. Um, it's just not, it's not like this is, uh, 3M headquarters or the, the headquarters of the DFL party there on Plato Boulevard. Um, the rules are clearly different in in this environment. Um, it's a, it's a citadel of democracy. It's a citadel of constitutional rights. Um, so, um, I think there's the, a key point of tension there is, is safe workplace free of harassment and discrimination while also um, being clear about uh, defense of inalienable First Amendment rights. So do you think that original, I mean, yeah, I, that was kind of our reading, especially Michael had posted the video from the from the February press conference that this all, you know, that, that triggered all of this. And it, it certainly doesn't seem like that falls under what he wouldn't even would be under that, um, that policy. It seemed a little bit like a, try to, you know, a, a statement to punt a little bit and, and just hopefully everybody gets over it and, and moves on. Right. Well, the speaker said in the, in her statement on Friday that the, uh, the behavior doesn't even have to meet the statutory definition of harassment or discrimination to trigger, uh, a notification to house HR to get the policy moving, which is extremely problematic um, because now you've got, uh, now I'm supposed to be uh, walking around. I shouldn't make light of this, but the idea that I'm somehow bound by some HR policy other than my own is, I mean, it's absurd. And especially in that building, um, which is where we employ our free speech and debate for the act of self-government. I would, Patrick, from, from your perspective, explain to our listeners, what type of situation um, is the press faced with? Because we talked a little bit about this earlier in this episode, that there is a very important role that the press plays in terms of getting information out from elected officials and understanding this stuff. And if a reporter doesn't understand a particular piece of legislation, it's going to be very difficult for the public to understand because there is, while there is a lot more access to information, meaning we can stream things on our phone, we can see live debates. There is still a transition and and a transfer of that information that, that is so critically important that it goes through the media in some ways and can help who can help, uncomplicate and simplify some of this legislation. Sometimes that type of process is confrontational and it leads to disagreements. The concern that I think that the letter brings out is that that this this interpretation that the House DFL has about their policy could very much slow down and hinder the ability for a reporter to ask tough questions at a press conference about a whole variety of subjects. And I think we all can agree that there's a there's 
a pretty rich history in this country and all around the world of reporters asking tough questions for the betterment of the public and for public service. But the, but to, to get to my point specifically, Patrick, is that the problem here? Is that this this perceived HR policy and, and who it applies to and who it doesn't? The If the House leadership or any legislator is going to apply it this way into the arena of the press conference, it's going to, in some ways, hinder the ability for the press to ask questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, scenarios I can imagine or I've even been part of in which somebody might say that I was harassing them. I mean, as I was an elected official, and I was like literally walking after them down the hall, you know, sort of accosting them to get them to answer a question. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, under some interpretation, you could say that that was harassing behavior. But look, you got elected to the job. Um, you're putting forth policy X, Y, Z, you better be ready to defend it. Um, and if you're not, we're going to try to force you to, uh, you know, and as far as our role at the Capitol, you're right. There's, uh, you can look up now online, you know, you, and try to figure out a piece of legislation, but, um, best of luck, unless you're, uh, and unless you're an attorney, uh, or have some experience with it. Um, there's a, and there's a fire hose of stuff happening at that Capitol, especially this session. And, you know, it really is helpful for the, for the, the, the state and its voters who are, have to make tough decisions, uh, to have somebody who's there who can, uh, help understand exactly what's happening, what the policy implications of these bills are, what the potential unintended consequences are. Um, and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think we play an absolutely vital role. Uh, we, we are, um, we are it, reporters are their own entity. They are not invited guests. Um, we all own that building. Um, uh, like I said, it's not 3M headquarters. It's not the DFL party headquarters. Uh, we all own that building and we have a right to be there. Um, you know, I mean, they, they can expect a level of civility and respect. Uh, although I should mention that respect is actually not required as the, the First Amendment. It's just not. So, like, don't tell me that, you know, oh, we have to have a respect. Well, I mean, we like to have a respectful environment, but I actually don't have to respect you. I don't. And um, so, you know, that's we like to uphold certain norms of civility and respect. but. Um, Please don't tell me that uh, how I um, should do the job, um, assuming that I'm doing it um, legally and ethically. Um, that's the job, and we're going to do it. And um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of hand wringing amongst journalists about how you know we're sort of the least respected people in America behind used car dealers and politicians. <laughs> um, I would argue, well, some of that is, okay, some of it is, is there's been a cynical move to, to erode, uh, our credibility, A, B, there's, um, there's been some, uh, you know, some, some bad reporting and bad writing and bad editing, which has eroded trust in us. Um, but C, um, it's kind of like, you know, if you're a dentist, like, okay, people don't like going to the dentist, like, I'm sorry, but you know, that doesn't mean you give them more laughing gas, the patient. It just means that you have a job that's hard 
and people don't always like it because they, they don't necessarily want to hear what you tell them. They don't necessarily want to hear you speak rudely um, to their, to some elected official that they admire. Um, that's just the nature of the job. Um, and so, um, this is a whole other rant. I'm sorry, but you know, people don't like me as you can tell, it's not really my first concern. Yeah, no, that perfectly dovetails into into my question. I know we're, we're running up against the clock here, but, um, I wanted to ask about kind of this new 2023 era of, of, of media and and with the Twitter and social media, so with legislators elected being able to put out their own, you know, facts or stories, uh, videos, all of that on social media, but also, you know, post, well, hopefully just we can say post-Trump, right? Post-Trump fake news kind of era. How has that really changed your ability? You know, you said it has eroded a little bit. I, I would assume that probably has played a role in eroding the the faith or or kindness towards journalists. But can you speak to a little bit how this sort of new way of doing things has impacted your role as a reporter, as a journalist, and getting getting the facts out and having that access? It's it's, it's a tough environment because uh, there is so much. Um, context-free um, data, if you will. I won't even call it information, but it's just, it's just so much. And so, I, and, and people are just, their, their brains are not really well-equipped. All of us, really, we're not well-equipped to deal with this. We have too many cognitive biases. And so when something comes across the transom that we kind of want to believe, um, we latch onto it. And if it, you know, something comes across that from over the, the fire hose of news and information is something we don't want to believe, then we set it aside. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, you have, like you said, you know, there's, there's politicians, elected officials who will go straight to the public with a, a statement of that is something that, you know, is untrue or it's spin. And, you know, they love it because it's unmediated. Whereas, uh, you know, you know, they say they're, they're going, they, they don't have, they don't have to worry about the filter as they would call us. Um, it's unmediated. So unfortunately for the, for the consumer of this stuff, um, they're not getting, you know, they're not getting the proper context, um, or the history that, or the fact checking that we can provide. Um, you know, all that said, I, I will say, uh, well, first of all, there's, there's nothing that really can be done about it, uh, practically speaking, especially for someone like me. Um, you know, but this is just the new information age that we live in. It's, it's democratized. Uh, everybody can be a publisher. Uh, at the same time, there's, there's no, you can't really have any expectation of privacy. Um, so this is the new era we live in. Um, but I do find that, that, our readers, um, we have a community of readers who are very, they show a lot of gratitude to our, what we do. I mean, what we do is still very skills-based. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the work that we do, investigative or analytical or explanatory work, it takes a fair amount of experience and expertise to do the work. I mean, I'm glad that there's, you know, everybody can kind of be a sleuth on social media, but it's it, it, not anybody can do what Dina Winter 
or Max Nesterak um, do for us, um, just to name a couple people of our, of our talented staff. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated, challenging, and, um, and I, and our readers are extremely thankful, um, that we're able to do it. So I still, you know, there's, there's a, there's a place for us. Well, I want to be respectful of your, of your time, Patrick. We have, um, we really appreciate you being on. We've uh, wanted to have you on before and we're, we're glad to have you on. I hope that we can have you come back, um, to talk about some of the great reporting that your organization does. Um, I've done a little writing for, for the Minnesota reform. It's a great publication and folks, for the listeners out there, um, who don't know Patrick, who don't know his, his, his organization and his media outlet, I would encourage you to go to Minnesota reformer.com minreformer.com to get more of their articles. And Patrick is the, if, if you're, if you're thinking of the, think of one of the the biggest political scandals that ever happened in American history, Woodward and Bernstein and the, and Watergate, Patrick is Woodward and Bernstein combined. And he is the exact type of, he's the exact type of journalist that is, is good for our state is good for our country. Um, every media outlet has an agenda bias interest. Uh, but in terms of their advocacy, their work, their investigative work, it's a great organization. It's a great media outlet. And I would very much encourage folks to, to visit the Minnesota Reformer, follow Patrick's work. And Patrick, I really appreciate you coming on, and we hope to have you on again at some point. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. I do want to per- point out that Carl Bernstein cheated on his pregnant wife, and I, I, would, I did not do that myself and, of course, would never do that. So I, I don't want to be compared to Woodward Bernstein I, in all facets. I'll, I, I, with, I will withdraw the uh, compliment. Is there someone um, uh, uh, who you would like me to compliment you and refer to that it would be better for in post editing? Just uh, let me know. Maybe just, maybe just <laughs> offline. Um, next, we'll work. Here's what we'll do. Next time you come on, I will pre-screen my compliment for you to make sure that it's one that's your, your that you appreciate. Okay. All right, I appreciate it. I also want to give a warning to your your listeners that I mean we are um you know, we are the the commie left that they fear and loathe. Um but um we, we are uh, we go after everybody across the spectrum. So but you're transparent about your biases and agenda. It's it's we are, it's, we're very we're honest about our values. I like to say that. Yeah, you're honest about yeah, your values. Which yes. I mean you're honest about your values and, and that's, and that's what I think is good. And I think that you're honest about it in, in, in your style. And that's what I think is just why you, why you do, why you're one of the best in Minnesota, why we wanted to speak to you today. And we hope to have you on about uh, other topics down the road. Yeah, for sure. This has been fun. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you have you. a good day. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was a great uh, interview with uh, Patrick. Um, great outlet. And he has, grit to him. And I, I think that grit came through in the interview. And I think it's important. I want to get your perspective on this in particular, as I always do. Um, but his grit, I think, is part of the character of being a journalist. And I get it as he talked about, they have a values and 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 what some perceive to be bias and agenda. I get all that stuff. Uh, but having someone with his type of grit and having reporters that I know are there that are the type of people that are going to ask the tough questions 
and they're going to act responsibly in that adversarial role, which it is, I think is good for us. It's good for Minnesotans and it's good for Americans and, and it's good for democracy. It's good for our awareness of issues. I'd like to get your take and then and then I also want to add, I want to get your take on that, but also your perspective on the interview. But also, he made some very interesting points about the HR policy that I thought um, he was much more pointed about. And I thought that his application of that of those points I thought were, were pretty were pretty insightful. And I think he did a good job of laying out the potential ramifications of a broad interpretation of this policy. Absolutely. You know, um, I've interacted with with Patrick a little bit in my previous roles, um, partisan roles at the Republican Party or on campaigns or for electeds. Um, and he is, he's tough. I mean, I think he is very well aware of the way he conducts himself and the way he does, but he does he asks tough questions to get the story, right? I think that there is a role. Not all reporters are that way. Um, I think that Patrick has had a really good success in, you know, conducting himself the way he does um, to to get the story, to get the coverage, and to get the answers to the to the Minnesota people. Did I always love it when I was on the receiving end of it? Well, maybe not because, you know, our job as communicators is to spin and to, you know, provide nice fluffy coverage for our bosses at times. Um, but there there certainly is a role to that. And, and Minnesota Reformer has done a good job. Um, and like you said, you know, covering all all facets while they might have a, have a lean or a bias to them, I think that they are very open about that. And that doesn't stop them from from doing things like this that maybe puts the pressure on Democrats or liberals in a way um, that some might expect it. So I I do appreciate him coming on. He is very open and honest about who he is. This, you know, he was largely responsible for putting Minnesota Reformer together, right? And and they've done great work. So um to your to your point about the HR policy, you know, I was as he was speaking, I was kind of thinking back a little bit to some previous conversations we had about um not about reporters, but about protests at the homes of individuals and how homes of electeds is kind of where they have are supposed to be able to have that peace, right? That that respect, that coverage at their homes. That is where for with what Patrick was saying is kind of the opposite of that. At the Capitol, you don't get to have just retreat to your home. You don't get to just avoid these situations. This is where that is meant to be and meant to be conducted. And he, you know, he gave the example of following a legislator down the hall, asking questions. I think that's well within the rights. You you feel the same? Of course I do. I mean, I've, um, I have seen reporters uh, follow, I mean, it's very standard at the end of press conferences when people are generally done with their comments for reporters to walk up and ask follow-up questions. It's not uncommon for reporters to follow people as they're walking out of the the press room or the hallway where they're briefing to their offices. It's not uncommon for re- reporters. It's not all. It, it's very common. It probably happens mm-hmm. more than that is reporters uh, showing up at members' offices, elected officials' offices uh, at the Capitol or at the state office building on the floor. Um, it's important to note that members of the press, unlike average members of the public, are afforded access to the floor of the Minnesota Senate. Uh, they are access; they're allowed access to the floor of the Minnesota House to ask questions. So there is a level of accessibility that members need to have, both members of the House and members of the Senate, at the state capitol. Um, yes, 
in some instances, because of the dynamics of the legislature, um, aside from legislation that's passed, legislators will do things uh, outside of, in their scope of being legislators that reporters will have to ask tough questions. And there needs to be a safe space for reporters to ask those questions. I, I have not seen anything at all in the video that I've seen or in the incidents to describe that warrant that anything in Mr. Callahan's, uh, anything in Mr. Callahan's behavior or any other member of the press warranted the type of reaction that was laid out, which is why I believe uh, the house speaker has put out a letter talking about wanting to make sure that relationships are maintained and improved and repaired and that there is communication that exists and that the impact of her letter was not to curtail reporting. Um, I think that there's going to be some work that's going to need to be done to maintain the press relationship, to repair that relationship. And I think that the House leadership on the DFL side is going to have to go a long way um, to ensure that they are transparent and they're open uh, and that they are answering the questions of the press uh, fully. Um, at the same time, as we've as we've both said, the press has a responsibility to act professionally, too. But in, in this particular instance, there's no question that they did. Completely agree. And I do want to just make sure that we're, um, you know, we do have a couple, a, a day here between our interviews. And so a subsequent letter, a second letter from the speaker has come out that does um, address some of the comments we we talked about in our first interview. Um, one of the comments in there was basically, you know, if you have further questions, further concerns, you know, feel free to reach out. We're happy to have a meeting. And I don't know if it was you or somebody else I saw on Twitter who posted but this is kind of the issue now. Now you want to have more meetings in private. And um, so I'm going to be interested to see it. I, I don't think the press is going to roll over on this and say, great, we appreciate that you're saying we're not under surveillance, that this is a, you know, you guys are going to work to do better. Um, I think that there is going to be a little bit of hard feelings for this and, and a little bit of um, – maybe added pressure on the House DFL to make sure that they're doing stuff and maybe maybe the legislature as as a whole to make sure that they are kind of rising to the acceptable level of transparency, but even even a little bit above because um, it's a little questionable at this point. I think you're spot on. And I appreciated your perspective and analysis, both uh, having more experience than I have, particularly in working with both, as you have with national media and local media, I think our re listeners are going to get a good perspective about your professional background. And and I'm really, really appreciative that I was able to have this topic with you because I learned a lot from also talking with you, Becky. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. That's so kind. Um, our favorite subject, and again, tweet of the week, but I just I have to ask: Do am I going to cry this time, or is this nope. is this a is, this is a funny one? Yeah, or reasonable. All right, we'll let you go first. All right, DJ Walter, Daniel Walter. He oh tweeted over the weekend, enjoying a sensible supper of leftover Easter ham reminds me of how right Allery RL is when it comes to holiday proteins. Ding. You know, um, so I was going to wait on this subject, but we'll just we'll do it right here in, in between. I believe, and we can talk about this offline, that we should introduce a reoccurring theme of having food takes um, that we discuss. Uh, we got so much show. feedback on it, man. Yeah. And so let's talk offline for our next show about a food take. Um, I would frame it up as your horrible food take and my response <laughs> to your horrible food take. Um, All right. 
but we'll discuss it online. I would agree. I think there was a lot of interest, a lot of people with bad opinions, and also a lot of people I was surprised with um, that agreed with me in it, which I appreciated. Um, it was nice, but yes, I'm sure we can come up with that. But there is there is something about food takes that I think <laughs> needs to be explored, and I, I think struggling. it's going to be fun to have those conversations. My tweet of the week is from Bill. I'm sorry, from Bruce Siski. Bruce Siski, the Minnesota uh, Minnesota Wild are in the playoffs. They're playing the Dallas Stars, formerly the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, and he sent out a very simple tweet called that says, Norm Green still sucks. Norm Green was the uh, owner of the uh, Minnesota North Stars when they left the state of Minnesota and moved to, to Dallas. There is a rallying cry around Norm Green still sucking in Minnesota. There is no one... I think in the sports community, that's more of a polarizing figure than Norm Green. Uh, and that rallying cry that, of Norm Green sucks is just a, is still sticking with me from when the North Stars left. And it's great to have it back in the playoffs. I wish all of the luck to the Minnesota Wild. They won a great game, uh, overtime win against the Dallas Stars. And um, Norm Green still sucks. Do you, do you stay up and watch it? I hear it went till like 1 a.m.? I did stay up late. I'm not much of a late night sleeper, um, but I did stay up, watch it, and um, just one last time, Norm Green sucks. So There you go. Well, we want to thank everyone for listening uh, to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. Uh, before we go, we want to remind you to show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. We're also at Twitter at at bbbreakpod. That's at BB Breakpod. Want to thank you again, and we will return next week. Becky, thank you so much for being here again. Can't wait. We'll see you next week. You got to say goodbye. Goodbye. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>